Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. The episode you're about to hear was actually recorded back in July, and we are so excited to finally get to share it with you after navigating a couple of bumps in the road. And one caveat before we dive in, for about the first five minutes, our guest's audio is not that great, um, but it does get better, we promise. So thanks in advance for sticking with us. Our love is what we make of it. 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 Sex for smart people. That means you. Oh, oh hi. hi, and welcome to Sex for Smart People. I'm Ryan, and I use the pronouns they, them, theirs. I'm Dave, and I use he. This is Alba, and I use they, them, theirs. Yay, Alba. You've been the human behind the legend to me for so long because I know you through Cole Park, who, dear listeners, you may have heard and also loved Cole Park on episode eight, the episode called Empathy is the Sexiest. Um, (laughs) And so, Alba, I'm so thrilled to finally get to meet you. And I love that we're all, we are, it feels very intimate being, seeing you on the computer screen, but we're all in different locations today. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And where are you, Dave? The the surface of the sun (laughs) i'm in a very warm room in los angeles california (laughs) and alba alba thank you so so much for taking the time to join us today and we shall kick off as we always do with that question what is your relationship to relationships yeah, that's a great question. I feel like it can go so many different ways in my mind. One is a more abstract, theoretical kind of like, what is a relationship? Which is fun and I think about it. But I think most immediately about how many times I've been in a relationship with someone um, who asked me, what is our relationship status? Like, at what point are you my girlfriend? Am I your lover? Um, and so I actually think it's really important because it winds up being a moment where we start teasing apart what it means to be an intentional relationship together. And I get really angry about labels in particular because they have all these setups that makes it feel like we're destined to fail because we don't fit into a particular box. So um, as a mama of my now six-and-a-half-year-old, we've spent a lot of their life working on having lots of different categories for how we relate, relate to people and what we call those relationships. And so my relationship to relationships is that I love them. I think they're precious, but they're really problematic. If each and every one is its an own intentional um combination of textures and flavors and colors and activities and rubbings. <laughs> Listeners can't see, but I'm, I'm waving my hands ecstatically. Yeah. I, I might explode from how aligned I feel with you, Alba. Thank you for expressing that so beautifully. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, in, um, I'm often taken aback by how that idea that you just expressed comes across as like so radical. Right. Or I actually think it's not like that we get to create the vocabulary around every connection we have, everybody that we love, but that, that, that because those labels are so tied in with the, the dominant scripts of society that, that, that it, it can seem radical to, to just 
Ryan, have we talked about on the podcast our our idea for our other podcast that we would call Not That Radical? <laughs> I think you should share it now. It, it's just we would say stuff like that. Like when you have relationships with people, you should figure out how you want to relate to each other and then do that and call it anything you like. And then we both just <laughs> yell, Not That not Radical! Not That Radical! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds like intentional unweavings of things that we've been handed that feel like the ways in which we create possibilities that actually Mm -hmm. help us be our full and whole living selves rather than the inevitably failure that we will reach if we try. At least for me, I will never be a good wife, mother, whatever, whatever. It's just that there are things that are particular to me and how I relate to another person that are special and unique and precious and labels tend to hurt that more than they help. Hmm. That's said very beautifully. Yeah. Has that always been the case for you? Or what was your journey to discovering freedom beyond labels in as much as you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, it was mostly just like utter failure over and over again. Um, (laughs) And it was because I had beautiful relationships with beautiful people that I tried to force into labels and boxes in a certain like order. Like, oh, we've been together Mm -hmm. this amount of time. We should live together. We should try to have babies together. We should be happy sleeping in the same bed every night. We should... um, whatever fill in the blank that should come next in a successful relationship and in reality the ways in which I connect with different people is really special and it usually has one or two things that are so incredibly perfect and intense about that particular coupling and often it has very little to do with domesticity or offspring or other things that we've been that I at least was taught was what a successful relationship was so um it was just me, of course, particularly in my queer relationships, um, and particularly after I had been with the person who I now co-parent with. Uh, we had been together for about nine years in a monogamous relationship and started to open that relationship that it began to be off script. And having not having words for things and not knowing a lot of language around monogamy and those kinds of things made me tap into the more creative places and just failing at trying to make all of them normal heterosexual heteronormative boy girl plus house and car and dog (laughs) and failing enough helped me i hope i'm still working on it always will be unlearning those lessons thank you so much for sharing that and i also just have such deep respect for, for for all of who you are and what you expressed and how you are as a human in the world. I also have such deep respect for the work you do in the world as spiritual director of Soul Force. Would you be okay to share a little bit about what you do there and what lit your lit the fire under you to to engage in that particular way? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, and that's my dad's side of family. My mom's side of family is Roman Catholic, and I grew up over here in Western North Carolina in Appalachia. Um, And I was a very dedicated Bible-going girl from the time I was born until until I came out and was told everything I had ever been told about how much God loved me was undone in a second because I felt love and desire um, for girls and as well as boys and that that was unnatural and unworthy of God's love and that really threw me for a loop in the sense that um, 
I mean, I was raised an only child by my great-grandmother, so I got a lot of spoiling and attention. And therefore, when I fell in love with the girl for the first time, it became clear to me that the entire Southern Baptist Church and my entire family and the entire rest of the world must be wrong, because I was really clear that God was really excited about this love I had. <laughs> that isn't the experience <laughs> of many people that I know, but... Um, yeah, only child, lots of love and affection. That was what came out of my 15-year-old mind. Um, was that I was right and the rest of the world was wrong. It set me on a course, all that to say, to understand how easily our communities are ripped away from our relationship with the divine because of coming out as trans or queer. Um, and I was really pissed about it for a long time, and I got a call that it was... Like, for me, a, a divine call that was saying, you have to do something about it. Like, you can't bitch about not having spiritual community and not do the work. And so that led to divinity school. And after divinity school, our amazing ED at Soul Forest came and got me and was like, this is the organization you're supposed to work for, and we're going to make it happen. And so what I do there is help other folks on their journey who've experienced that same kind of what we call spiritual violence, which is things that are directed toward our, they impact our bodies, um, they impact our health and our well-being, but they're directed toward our souls by claiming God's authority against queer people and against trans people. It's invoking a spiritual power that for many of us is way higher than any kind of earthly law. And that is an incredibly traumatic experience in, in communities in which um, communities of faith are our center grounding point um, and our central point of connection for culture and family. So I work on theologies and what are they talking about when they talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, what the Bible really says, um, other ways of thinking about text, particularly scripture, biblical scripture as being liberatory and being really real about what's in the Bible and how it impacts our people. Um, and I help folks through their spiritual journeys on a one-on-one -on -one basis on some of our programs work through the internalized shame and guilt around their queerness or their gender and think through based in whatever different folks' theologies are of the divine and their relationship to it, what are authentic ways that we get to be our whole selves and that we get to connect with ancestors and legacies and traditions and theologies that resonate with our whole selves and our whole life and the possibility of liberation and life abundance. Just that. <laughs> on my good days. <laughs> and when we're not doing that, we're taking on religious right groups like national religious broadcasters and disrupting their events and praying their hate away and other nonviolent direct action um, mm. to reclaim our voices and our powers in places that uh, harm us, particularly us in the South, but also in the global South and how we be in solidarity with our international brothers and sisters. Mm. Dang! <laughs> it's a lot of work for a part-time job. <laughs> yeah, it sounds. Uh, it sounds uh, like you're doing every. It sounds like everything. Like you're doing everything. That's like amazing. it's only everything important. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what is it? What is an, a, a on a day-to-day -day basis? Like what? What is a day at your work? How does it go? Like. Mm -hmm. 10 a.m. coffee, 10 06, <laughs> like confront everything bad about like, like what, what, what are the actual things you do that, that, that help 
this amazing work you're doing? Yeah, that's such a great question. And uh, my particular position is a floater position, which means whatever else is going on, that's what I'm working on. Um, So, for example, we just um, are putting the last editing touches on. There's a draft available now, but it will be full release very soon on a new take on Solomon Gomorrah. So really going deep into the actual scripture, the Sodom as in like the word from which Sodomite and Sodomy laws were derived, um, and connecting how that relates to laws and, um, and violence that's been perpetrated against LGBT people, right? So part of it is researching, writing, creating resources like that. Uh, another thing that I did today was edit um, a blog post from our executive director who was at the World's Aid, uh, who was one of the people working through the World AIDS Conference in Durban, South Africa. Another thing that I was working on was some of the languaging for um, our Know Your Neighbors campaign, which basically takes on the religious right and the exportation of cultural laws to the global south that leads to situations like Uganda um, and other places in which LGBT people are specifically targeted um, because of their sexual orientation. And sometimes it really looks like just reading through zillions of emails and responding to folks who are having um, a personal emergency of like, I went to this Christian school, they're bringing ex-gay people to campus, I'm out, and what do I do in response? Um, Or helping our national campus organizers with their um, national kind of... um, alert system and resource for people on Christian college campuses who are are currently working against Title IX exemptions that Christian schools are claiming so that they don't, so they can legally discriminate against queer, mostly trans, is actually the folks who are most targeted by that. Um, So I do some of the messaging and thinking through, and sometimes it's like, literally flying to Nashville, Tennessee to go to the National Oldest Broadcasters Conference. And while they do the direct action, I pray in a group of 35 people as police surround us to push us out of the conference. And we pray into the space, our queer bodies, and pray into the space accountability um, for the harm against our brown and queer bodies that um, that particular group is perpetrating. So all over the place, here, there, and everywhere, as much as I can fit in 20 hours a week, um, and sometimes more. And then I work on curriculum. How do we help folks understand the connections between religious oppression and race and gender, um, ableism, classism, and connect those dots? Because Christian supremacy is a thing that affects all of our issues. It's like the moral undergirding between racism and classism and sexual oppression mm-hmm. in this country. <sighs> Oh, hi, you're the best. I know that I've said this before, Alba, but I just like, I'm, I'm moved to tears as you're speaking just now. And I just, just thank you for being who you are and doing that work that you do in the world. And I just, I'm feeling just, I wish we had, we could do a 20 hour episode <laughs> with you because we would still not exhaust all of the richness and all of the things I'd be eager to dig in with you about. Thank you. I mean, Yo, can we talk for a second so you about? You can always tell me to stop talking because I'll just talk to your for as long as you want. <laughs> I, I just want to, yeah, give a give a shout out to how deeply messed up the entire story of Lot and his family is. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one. That Sodom and Gomorrah story. That is that is one weird and troubling section of that book. 
there's a lot of and it's important to understand what's actually trying to be communicated there and we get those of us who grew up Christian, especially evangelical, or in any kind of really conservative religious space, are taught the same messages. At least for me, I read the same stories over and over again, and I could not find a different reading. It wasn't until I went to divinity school and really spent four years digging back through in text and language and analysis that I could even read the text for the words on the page, that I could actually even just wrap my mind around seeing it from a different perspective and that's Mm. real I mean literally I will go back to the Bible sometimes reading and be like how did I not read it it's right there in black and white how did I still get such a distorted picture of what this was trying to say and it's through repetition yeah Yeah. Mm. wow and for those who want to learn more about your work or maybe read the your take on the, the thing you're working on in Sodom and yeah. Gomorrah when it comes out, where can folks find uh, how to learn more? Yeah, on selfforce.org, there's a banner across the top of the page that where you can download a free draft copy of the resource and the printed version for donations should be out in the next week or so. Um, but folks can read it and pass it along. We hope that it's a way to engage um, that that hopefully speaks to people who come from um, places of faith, but also for people who just want to have a little bit more information and support and having conversations with folks who base their understanding of morality and sexuality in the Bible. It just gives you some of those tools um, to be respectful, but also to know what you're talking about as you're moving through those hard conversations as we like fight for the lives of queer and trans people across the world. Mm. Thank you, Alba. This has been a month of such, not new violence, but extra, extra visible violence. And just, it's just so palpable how much, the, 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 how much aching there is. And, and these, these questions that poured in, I was thinking who, who could be our guest to, to really, um, really honor the, the world moment that we are in and, um, and check in with these questions that we're about to address. And, and Alba, I'm so grateful to have particularly you um, for these, um, I'm nervous. Dave, would Let's you, <laughs> would me too, Dave, would you read question number one? Question one. And now you will insert your own laser sound effects. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Do your own lasers today. Hey, SFSB. I'm a straight lady in my late thirties, a single mother of an exceptionally tender two-year-old son. There are so many complex things about motherhood, of course, and it took a lot for me to decide to bring another life into this aching world. But ever since the massacre at Pulse, all I can do is scream and cry. The fear, the shame, the stigma, the hatred, the violence in the world. What if my son is gay? What if he is subject to the violence like we saw in Orlando? How do I raise my son when I see the world as such a hostile and terrifying place? I know you are not parents, but I know that some of your guests are. These questions are gigantic, I know. I'm asking them in every forum that I possibly can, hoping for anything to grasp onto. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, um, a book that I love that I got to be a part of called Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines, which is uh, an anthology uh, about mothering, which is not 
about offspring necessarily, but how we learn to mother ourselves and mother each other um, in our movement toward liberation is a really special book. So I encourage everyone to think through and work through that book of an anthology of um, lots of um, mothers of color in different forms, mothering different ways of being in the world. Um, but I wrote a poem for that for that anthology um, that was basically asking the same question when my child was only six months old. That was a question around, like, how much of the world do I show you to prepare you for it? And how much of it do I squirrel you away and keep you cocooned um, in order to try to keep you safe and innocent for as long as possible? So that feels like an, an ongoing question um, that now you know, almost seven years later, I still think about sometimes, but, you know, I was talking to one of my friends, um, and I was like, how exactly should we engage? Like, what do I do with my kid when I was particularly talking about sexual violence? How do I teach my female assigned seven-year-old about, uh, sexual violence and in the, at the same time, not making the world a scary place, um, and this beautiful person, Cece, um, said to me, which I think is the best advice that I've ever gotten, is that we teach our children, and at the same time that we're teaching them that the world is scary, we also teach them about what we are doing to make it better. And thinking about introducing things like pulse, things that are really heavy and hard, I think about all of our beautiful black and brown babies, um, who are coming into this moment where there is such a, a collective consciousness around the danger of just being in one's car or in the park or on the street or with one's family, that that's an incredibly tender place um, to have to introduce the reality of, of the potential for violence at the same time loving on our children and not wanting to make the world a scary place. And that feels like the most that I have to offer my kid is to say, this is what is true. And what is also true is that these are the things that we do in order to try to make the world a better place. And if it's hard to come up with the things that one is doing to make the world a better place, then that is a practice, like an intentional practice that one can start, right? Like I can talk about, this is what I do around making sure that we have autonomy over our own bodies and that we can keep them safe and well and healthy. And this is what we do in solidarity with our friends and comrades who we believe in so tenderly that they also have the right to have their bodies be loved for and cared for and taken care of. Mm. That's the only that's the only suggestion I got, which I am passing along because it was so helpful. Hmm. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I feel I, I don't know. That's such a I think that's a really good answer. I mean, I, I feel terrified all the time <laughs> and I'm only taking care of me, you know, and like my cat. Um, and, and the idea of, of having to, I, I can't, I, I, I honestly cannot imagine how difficult and what a responsibility you, you must feel to have to, to have another person relying on you to teach them about the world in that way. And I don't know, the thing that always gets posted that I see in moments of tragedy. So now almost all the time is Mr. Rogers's thing about looking for the helpers. Um, 
when when something terrible happens and you watch the news, you will be able to see people who are going to help, who are rushing toward danger, who are helping those who have been afflicted. And that you have to remember that those people are are, are there, that there are helpers. And so your idea of showing that you too can be the helper seems really like a, a good one to me because it not only suggests that there's goodness in the world, but says that you can be a part of doing that. That's such an astute answer. And it's something that, um, I don't know, I, I need to remind myself too. Yeah, I think there's also something about recognizing the place for where we get to be emotional creatures. Like thinking about that moment when stuff goes down, it's really important to remember that we actually, being strong for our children is not always the only thing to be. I remember when my children mm-hmm. overheard on the radio driving with someone else and came to me as we were like riding down the road one day and was like, Mama, why did that white police officer kill that man? And I was like, what man? And it was Mike Brown. This was a couple of years ago, and they were like four, right? And it was that moment of being like, I feel such grief, and it's important to share. Like, I am so angry and sad and helping our kids find their words to be and recognize that it's okay to be pissed and it's okay to feel like you don't know what to do and sharing that humanity with kids rather than being the perfect model or whatever we're supposed to be has been a real key to, for my relationship with my kiddo and I think that there's an important moment for public lament when we go into the streets sometimes it is in that response of like my I don't know what else to do but my body needs to to do something to mourn mm-hmm. um, that loss. Mm-hmm. And that feels super important. And so when I think about it, it's like being on that path with your kid or with your partners or with your community feels like part of the healing process. Um, and it's always a really good entry to talk about injustice in more concrete ways, like talking about homophobia and transphobia around Pulse mm-hmm. or talking about racism Christian supremacy when talking about police violence like that is a moment where that child is in whatever age appropriate language you can come to you get to this abstract notion of racism is abstract and is meaningless for little ones even for some of us adults how until we actually have language so to be able to say it isn't about bad people. It's about this thing called racism, and we work really hard to combat it. Mm-hmm. And this is how it shows up, even with people who are supposed to be protecting us, right? It's about yeah. naming those things and putting categories on them that, for me, at least give me somewhere to go other than just anger, which is what I feel. Yeah. 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 I'm also feeling moved by how uh, she articulated that her son is exceptionally tender and also what a, and who knows if, if he's cisgendered or who, who he will be in all of his fullness. But, um, but whatever, uh, whatever part masculinity plays in, in his life, um, the idea of, of raising a child who is exceptionally tender, like how, how beautiful that that's the case and what a beautiful and weighty responsibility (laughs) of a, of a a parent of an exceptionally tender child. I just feel the world, I I don't know much, but I feel pretty clear that the world needs exceptionally tender people. Um, So I'm excited that your son is who he is that way. Yes. Yes. Question two. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's the weakest laser ever. Yeah. I feel heavy in the stuff that we're talking about. And I think that there is place for grief and for joy, but lasers are not coming <sighs> easily to me today. Yeah, uh, we either. usually do laser and fireworks sounds after announcing each question. Gotcha. Um, but question number two, um, also from a parent, um, I'm a mother of a young daughter and I can't stop thinking about the Stanford rape case and all the fucked up things about our culture that it brings to light. Can you please have someone who is a parent on the podcast and, or share some resources for talking to kids about consent? That is the question. And again, I'm so glad to have particularly you, Alba. And I, um, I just, for those, we don't need to go into detail about what happened with the Stanford rape case, but let's, let's just, uh, give a nod to some of the fucked up things about our culture that it brings to light, maybe for those who, who hadn't read in depth about it, um, how easily, um, this, uh, this white athletic swimmer, um, at Stanford was convicted of three felonies, but had a very light sentence in comparison to, um, to, uh, people of color who, uh, who had committed the same crime, the, um, the, the way that the newspaper reported on him was like quoting his, um, uh, his swim times as if that was just in this whole, this whole way that we, um, like if it feels like our society goes so far out of its way to humanize those who commit sexual assault and to dehumanize survivors of sexual assault. And that was so present in this particular case to um, many of you may have seen the, uh, the, whew, the world shattering world shattering. Yeah. I barely yeah. have words for it. The, uh, the testimony that yeah. the survivor um, shared in court and then was published on the Guardian and BuzzFeed. If you Google it and you haven't read it yet, um, it is very worth your time. Uh, um, yeah, I kind of, I think that's an, an, anything else that we should say to frame that for those who <sighs> may not have read about it. Um, no, I think that's a pretty good frame. It's very, it's, 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 it's about as. It's about as distressing as as a, a, an example of rank privilege in action in our criminal justice system that that I've ever seen. Yeah. That if you saw it on a on a case of law and order, you'd think that they were going too far in showing how broken our system of policing people based on their privileges. Um, yeah. It was hard to take. And knowing that there's so much like this that we don't even hear about because it doesn't get reported on, yeah. that this is like because it was like pretty Stanford person um, yeah. that uh, got, I mean, uh, the, the the perpetrator, I mean. But um, this person who's writing in is asking about talking about consent, which is humongous and only one piece of all of the fucked up things. So I'm not sure if she was... Uh, I. Uh, but she's asking specifically for for resources about consent. And the thing that comes to my mind that I'd also love to hear you speak to, Alba, is like we, um, I, and this is defaulting to gender binary language for a moment. Um, uh, we often talk to like how to talk to 
to girls about how to, uh, how, or, um, that, that their body belongs to them and how to, how to equip them. But I'm thinking about like the culture that, that is, um, what conversations need to be happening with, um, with everybody, (laughs) not just, not just girls or those assigned female. Um, and yeah, Alba, do you, do you have thoughts on this? Can I take it? Can I take us into Christian supremacy for just a second? Which is like my specialty. Should I tell you what Christian supremacy is? That might be helpful for some of our listeners. It's a word that, like, it's a phrase that I use, Christian supremacy, to not talk about the Christian faith uh, as a faith, but the ways in which systems of injustice like racism, like classism, like imperialism, um, use religion as a way to justify or moralize things that are harmful to some of us, particularly to marginalized communities. Um, And so why that matters in this particular, why it feels like an entry point into this really hard conversation is because we see it showing up across the board in this particular way. Maybe part of why this case feels so hard is because it shines a light and feels for some of us overwhelming at the number of intersections that overlap in terms of having class privilege, Mm -hmm. having enough resources to pay for things like attorneys, um, having color, like race privilege, having access to institutions of higher education, having access to being seen as good and moral and worthy because of things things like being a good swimmer, right? And so... It shows us all of them at once in this particular intersection that feels like, for many of us, overwhelming because it's all right there. And when what's actually true is that that is true all the time in many cases. And sometimes it's layered in ways that one thing like race or one thing like gender is so loud that some of the others kind of fall back. Um, and when I think about Christian supremacy, when I'm thinking about how to advise someone about talking about consent, is because our culture, because it is so saturated with Christianity as our moral guide and the principles that the country was founded on, and as someone who also identifies as a Christian and is ordained um, as clergy, I feel like it's really important to notice the ways in which our culture is built on this idea that goodness and purity, particularly in relation to people who are female assigned or women identified folks, is related to their distance from sexuality and from knowledge and intimacy with their own desire and pleasure and bodies. And so... Um, that's important when we talk about how we tell young folks about what to do with their hormones and their energy, what we tell queer folks when they're coming into different ways of engaging in sexual um, love and relationality with folks when they're coming out. It cuts across the board, right? Because there is this inherent notion around purity and goodness. Even when it's not on the forefront of what we're talking about, consent is something that for many of us, feels like a really great system of like you ask for permission you get permission um you respect someone else's authority over their own body and being and you accept responsibility for knowing your own those are really great ideas but they don't often connect with morality and so sometimes it feels like an unweighted conversation of like how do i tell you this logistical tactical thing like birth control for example 
versus what is right and good. Um, and so it feels like part of this conversation, particularly when we're focusing on aspects around sex and bodies, is understanding where we root ourselves and what we believe to be true. And if what we believe to be true is that each and every human being has a right to have authority and agency and sovereignty over their own body and communicate their desires and have those be respected, which is what I teach my kid and I think what many of us teach our kids when we tell them you're not allowed to hit or bite or kick somebody else or please ask for permission before you come into the bathroom when somebody's in there. Like those kinds of things we teach as a matter of respect and what is good um, and how we engage in social community as individual human beings, right? And some of those lessons get extended, but they get really messy when we start talking about, well, you shouldn't wear this and you shouldn't wear that. And does somebody deserve it? And does somebody be, deserve to be punished? And all of those things that gets really messy, but I at least find it grounding to come back to some of those basic core ideas about what we believe to be true. And so as a person of faith and particularly Christian faith, for me, it's like, I believe that we were created in the image of the divine. And what that means is our bodies are precious and priceless and important, and they shouldn't be touched in any kind of way um, with any kind of harm or even affection without our explicit yes. Enthusiastic yes, not even a, like, okay, I guess that might be, but like a yes. Um, and that really applies when we're talking about sex and bodies and I think about a, a, a drug troop, the country kings, which I love, in which some of their messages really often are things like if the answer isn't hell yes, the answer is <laughs> hell no. Like those are the two options. Um I don't know. It feels a little bit like rambling, but that's where my mind and spirit go when I think about how to engage such a huge question like consent. Mm. I think it's not rambling. I wish I were half as good at formulating, at arranging my thoughts spoken in a spoken way as you are. I, I also think that, I don't, for me, for, personally, I think that that understanding of our bodies as, as the divine um, is is gorgeous, but 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 it's it's not a step that I share. And I think that I feel that our, that all of those things you said are true. Um, inherently even without that step that that uh that the only like the only thing we can point to is that we are ours and that we have a say over the the people and the 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 bodies and minds that we are yeah even if it doesn't come from a place of faith i think that it is really important to recognize the ways even in 2016 that we still do this guilt-shaming thing um, that's still really pervasive that we that we hear so often in media around um, bodies and what people are wearing or what bodies look like or what color those bodies are. And so yeah. um, it feels important to recognize that that's still an active part, even for those of us who feel things like purity culture and um, virginity until marriage and those kind of things are antiquated it still shows up in really toxic ways around us. So being able to label those also, I think for young folks is really important to be able to label when we see them because they show up in surprising places, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate the way that like, we can't help but have this conversation or you can't help but without this kind of zoom out, that that's where 
that that's where the meaningful stuff, because I'm, uh, I know we can talk for days about the basic tenets of, um, uh, consent is ongoing, can change any time that, um, that, uh, there, there are more ways of not giving consent than just a verbal no, yes. that this they and enthusiastic consent, you know, those basics. Um, but without being held in this, um, in this wider capital W Y, yeah. um, those basics feel, might feel like a checklist, those who don't come naturally, but I am thinking on a more just, uh, day to day level. And this is me as not a parent, but someone who, is, is around some wonderful children sometimes. Um, and how common it is to, to see things like, uh, Oh, give, give grandma a hug, go on, give grandma a hug or, or for, for kids to very early get the messaging that like someone's just going to come up and, and give you a big kiss on your cheek and scoop you up. And, and I wonder, um, I know that there are other conversations around that, but, but do you know of Elba just, with the acknowledgement that without this big picture zoom out, um, these smaller steps have far less, uh, meaning or weight, but, um, are there more, are there some, also some practical resources that you know of or somebody who's written about this really well? Oh gosh, so many. I mean, I think that a lot of these lessons around consent I learned through kink community and how that community has really been leading the way around how we engage, um, in consensual sexual practices for a long time. And, you know, I don't have a, a particular resource that's like, this is the go-to resource, but I do feel like, um, those little practices really matter. And it also really matters whether or not we live into them. Cause I can say that mm. I can say to my child or to myself, our bodies are precious. Our bodies are precious. But if I actually don't live in a way in which I am, dedicated to that practice, which includes things like self-care um, and includes things like consent building with your kid um, and how you negotiate home space. It, it means something different if we don't engage in those steps ahead of time and ongoingly because our kids know, just like our friends know and our peers know when things are authentic versus inauthentic. So I wouldn't even start before reading. I mean, yes. For me, it's really important to, to do a lot of self-reflection and think about the ways in which I'm living in accordance with what I believe to be true and what I tell my child is true um, and work really hard on trying to make those as consistent for them as possible so that they see them and experience them as what is true and normal. And it is the mm. hardest activism work I have ever done in my life. Decades of activism mm. work is by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. But that's making me think of the, how weirded out I was several years ago. The first time somebody, a friend asked me if they could give me a hug. And at first I felt just so weird. I like, Oh my God, of course. Like, but then as I, it really stuck with me, it made a huge impression on me. And, and then as I unpacked it, and this was several years ago. And then I was like, what deep respect this friend was showing me to, I mean, I think with, with close friends, I get to a point of course, where we, mm -hmm. we know that hugging is okay and still good to check in. But, um, but I, that's one tiny way that, that I've been inspired to live into is I, I is like, how, how are we all checking in with each other around, um, the, 
uh, our autonomy over our own bodies, even in these simple day-to-day ways. Yeah, and there's something about communicating with kids and even adults, actually, that names what is culturally true. So, like, I'm Latina, and when we're with our Latino community, like, everybody kisses everybody on the cheek to say hello and goodbye and hugs and all that stuff are just, like, Mm -hmm. absolutely standard operating procedure. And it feels really important to talk to my kid around, like, this is what our community does as a cultural practice. And in the same conversation, have conversations around. And if it's something you don't want to do, some of the options are, for example, the like passing of the peace in church where people often like hug everybody around them to say like, peace be with you or whatever it is mm-hmm. that people say. My kiddo is not super excited about strangers who obviously like, not obviously, but almost always want to like hug and kiss and squeeze and touch and whatever. And so we figured out alternative strategies where they like get up in my arms, even at seven, and I like wrap my arm around them and they kind of snuggle into me so that when I'm hugging, people get a like, hey, and they may put their hand on the little one's back, but it's like their, their entire frontal part, including their face, is planted in my body so that we're doing this practice, but we created a strategy that's like, how does it feel for you to have safety in your own body and consent to a thing while mm-hmm. recognizing culturally that there are these certain expectations in certain spaces and communities? Mm-hmm. So strategizing with kids and with partners who also maybe have social anxiety or don't feel comfortable with strangers touching them, all kinds of things is like a fun scheming way to be like in solidarity and in a team kind of strategy building. Mm-hmm. And just cheers to this person who wrote in and cheers to all parents asking this question. Yeah. It seems really hard. It's hard. Sorry for shouting. (laughs) Hi there. I want to give a shout out about Ryan's sex and relationship coaching practice. Working with Ryan was a hugely positive and transformative experience for me and my partner. By the end of the sessions, I felt confident and strong. I felt loved and able to love better. I learned ways to communicate with my partner that allowed us to really hear each other and express ourselves to one another in a completely new way. It's really challenging to face fears, to truly check in with yourself, to authentically be yourself and be with others, but Ryan provided strategies and tools, true judgment-free listening, and a supportive and safe space to explore, learn, and grow. Before I started working with Ryan, I felt like I was grasping for something. Now I feel okay. I feel calm. I feel strong. I know there's a place for me. No matter where you are in your process, I believe wholeheartedly in asking for help, getting support, finding a space to question and express. And Ryan generously and thoughtfully offers that. If those are things that you might be looking for, you can find more information at the coaching tab at sexforsmartpeople.com. Thanks. Question three. Dear SFSP. That's us. Thank you for being a source of light in a dark, dark world. I'm a bisexual, cisgendered woman married to a cisgendered straight man, and both of us are white, and I am sad and confused. I don't really know who to ask about this. I am glad this can be anonymous. I know in my heart that I am queer, but my life and family choices are so normal and normative, and I am aware of that. Most people in my life have no idea that I'm not totally heteronormative. So when the horrible thing in Orlando happened, I felt angry and sad as if it had touched me personally, but also that I felt I had no right to feel angry and sad, or especially not to speak up and express these things, 
because then I'd be taking up space of actual queer people. At the same time, I know that those of us with enough privilege to safely be out should be out. Do I have a right to claim the term queer? Is that helping or hurting the world, do you think? And then, do I have a right to feel angry and sad as if the Orlando tragedy touched me personally? Thanks for listening. I love this question so much. There's so many layers to it. Yeah. Do you feel moved to dive in, Alba? Gosh, there are so many layers. Um, yeah. Want to identify the layers well, together? I'm, I'm actually thinking about how it resonates with me as someone who got a, a girl in high school and then found someone who was a life partner for me uh, who was cis male and I identify as cis female and how we had a very normal hetero life for like nine years until I absolutely could not hold my lack of access to queer community and queerness um, that we both ultimately needed but um, it was so easy to be sucked into straightness as the default and assumed even when I would speak about being bisexual and still influenced so it just resonates deeply with me in the sense of like how affirmed and how engulfing the normalcy, the normality of being straight is in the world, especially with sex versus gendered and or cross-sex partnered. Um, and so I don't know about all layers, but what I feel is like a deep resonance with the pain of that feels so clearly like isolation for this human and want so deeply um, to just love on them and help them think through why why those feelings are there and what are their next steps. I don't think it's a mandate for every queer person to be out, and I do think it matters for those of us who are safe enough to be out to be our whole selves and be seen and affirmed to who we are. And this, do I have a right to claim the term queer? Is that helping or hurting the world, do you think? Obviously, none of us can can speak for this individual, and I so feel for them, too. Um, I've heard a lot of people in my circles really well-meaning share this question. I think it comes from a place of... Uh, of... of, of Checking privilege, yeah. Um, and and I, uh, as a as a, a queer and gender queer person, I I appreciate a consciousness around that. However, and I've been thinking a lot about the term queer too, and and even where it came from, um, being like slant or strange, or and then in the reclaiming of it, being like, yes, this is a term that is. Uh, some that which is like you know slanted away from that from that which is default or or dominant or normative and the power that is in that and um, I feel like that maybe to to claim the term queer because it's like all the cool kids are queer these days because in some some circles it it kind of feels like that Um, but but to claim anybody that claims the term queer who um, who is really 
in touch with the origin of that word and, and honoring the, the struggle, um, I feel like I would look forward to, this is a bold statement and I'm, I'm not, I don't know that I'm right about this and I'm curious what you think about this, Alba, but I, like I, I made an album called Love Songs for the Rest of Us, the rest of us essentially meaning queer. And I said that I look, f- I would like to build toward a world where the world I would like to inhabit is one in which that this album title is like obsolete and doesn't even make sense because so many of us identify with the rest of us, um, that there is no such thing as, as oppressive normativity. And, um, and so that's how I feel about the term queer. I feel like queer is essentially like, um, anti that which is is dominant and oppressive and i i i hear i i have some some wonderful comrades who who feel differently than i do and um and i get that it's important to hold consciousness of layers of privilege but as long as one is doing that i feel if you feel safe and Oh, if you're in a situation that allows you to to claim the term queer and that's true for you um i I personally believe that it would not be hurting the world. In fact, probably the opposite. Yeah, this is a really interesting question about queer. But it's sticky because then non, you know, to somebody who like agrees with queer ethics, but is, but identifies as a cisgendered straight man, but is maybe sometimes not totally monogamous or kinky or is where, where are the edges (laughs) where... Uh, where it feels okay. I don't want to be the arbiter of that. (laughs) I do feel strongly that we're all, that like all of our grievances are more connected than not, but I know it's easy also to brush under the rug, um, very real violence and oppression and, and, and take this too lightly. I don't know. Yeah. Personally, I felt really intensely about the word queer. It is something that for me feels different than gay, lesbian, bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, because of exactly what you said, and you said it so kindly, um, but I wouldn't say quite as gently, <laughs> but it's basically about a particular orientation based in a position of being marginalized or on the outside mm-hmm. that feels very complicated for me when folks who have a lot of access to privilege within all of the systems that are so defaulted around us to support hetero couplings um, or even homonormative couplings of like mm-hmm. fitting, we, we're just like what we're supposed to be apart from this desire um, or this occasional. For me, the term queer is specifically a, a politically based orientation to the world that includes an experience of marginalization. And so it, it feels like a rallying cry. It feels like a call to action when, when I self-identify as queer it puts it's me self-identifying with a particular struggle for liberation that is broad and has many layers um and lots of abstractness that isn't like that i don't have to exactly define am i bisexual or am i pansexual or am i polysexual or whatever those things are i really appreciate that that like the fluidity of being able to move within that. But most important for that label for me is a political orientation to say that there is something very wrong with the systems that tell us that we are not good, that we are not normal, that continue to oppress us because of our intersecting um, 
marginalization or like othered status and we are actually going to claim that as what is true and life giving for us rather than trying to fit into what has been told to us and so um speaking back directly to that person whether or not they have a right to is their own decision for me that I also do not, under any circumstances, want to be the arbiter of what is allowed to be called queer. But there does feel like there is an authenticity around connection to a particular orientation toward um, what is reinforced and privileged over and over and over again with a specific orientation identification outside of that that pushes back on it and says, like, actually, no, thank you. We don't. The goal isn't to make us fit into your mold. The goal is to, like, shatter the mold and figure out what is true and life-giving for mm-hmm. us. Um, and that's the qualification for me. Whether or not it's a felt feeling of solidarity with a community that one feels a part of around, like, this person asking do they have the right to feel like it touched them personally. Like, it, like it's not about, right, it obviously touched them personally. That is real and true mm-hmm. and valid and important and maybe a call for them to do, be, work through, think about coming out or being in the world in a way that allows for that part of them to be loved on and cared for and seen and affirmed and in community with others who feel similar. To the the question of do I have a right to feel angry and sad as if the Orlando tragedy touched me personally? I I agree with, as you said, I mean, obviously it did. And I guess would that we all feel every tragedy as if it had touched us personally. I mean, I couldn't hold all of that. None of us could, but I think of, um, I think there's a way of being mindful about how those emotions and in what spaces those emotions are expressed. But I, but how, and it, I don't believe that it should take a feeling of being touched personally to, to light a fire under us toward, toward action and to um, fighting for the rights of, of everybody and especially the traditionally marginalized. I feel like, um, but, but yeah, I would love, uh, yeah, I, I, I personally like hope to deepen like what I feel touches me personally. Um, I've been learning so much and need to learn so much more about um how I hold that. I want to, I want to own that. I did feel like the, the, the Orlando tragedy did touch me personally. So did, so, so does so much other violence in the world. That's maybe farther from me and my communities, but, but I, but, but this one especially, and also, um, I'm learning about how to then be conscious about then whose voices am I amplifying about it uh, when I'm posting things, um, when I express those feelings, like being conscious of who that is to letting those Mm -hmm. feelings like be not, not to deny them, but to, um, to, to hold them and breathe through them so that I might expand in my deep commitment to, uh, working against oppression of all kinds. Um, but I also, often, and this is the part that feels really like I often felt, um, uh, really stuck, um, and, and not, and knowing that stuckness is not serving anybody. Um, and so I feel even now it's like, I'm aware of like, I'm of the dangers of perpetuating like white fragility and that getting hung up on that is another version of 
of racism coming out. And so I, I just like, I feel aware of a lot of the layers of what I'm saying. And I, uh, I guess I just want to give a shout out that like, probably I'm not alone in, in feeling those things. And Alba as extremely wise person, (laughs) I'm wondering, (laughs) (laughs) just like, um, not necessarily, I guess, um, if you feel comfortable speaking to that, knowing that I'm not looking to like get let off the hook or like have a perfect right answer or right path. But, um, but that's one of the ways that this question that this person wrote in like resonates with me so deeply, like me too, like not knowing where to place my feelings. Yeah. That's so important. I think that's so important because I was um, in the Dominican Republic in an international conference of, um, well, the Organization of American States, which had an LGBTQ kind of contingent, and so folks were from all over Latin America um, and when when Orlando happened. And what it was incredibly powerful to be in community of entirely um Afro-Latinx and Latinos um, who were mourning together and mm-hmm. how it felt in that there were like a, several days where I was like, I do not want to hear from other people. Like, I do not want to hear from other queer people. I do not want to hear. I just, like, I don't have space for whatever it is that you're going through. And it was like, um, it felt like some the closest I, I feel like I could possibly have felt to what I hear particularly black folks coming out of the U.S. saying around, like, Mm. we center the lives of black folk and the black experience and Black Lives Matter calling for black folks to be in leadership and in the ranks, and that is, like, specifically an exclusive space. And so one of the things that it was just, it was an embodied feeling that I had understood intellectually for a while but felt for the first time in my body in a particular way in the ways that, I saw so many white LGBT organizations raising money from all the kinds of things from like care packages to gun control um, and talking about how terrible this tragedy was that happened in the LGBT community while not recognizing that people were outed, undocumented folks who now had to fear the state because they were outed based on surviving the massacre and how what it means for someone to have been Puerto Rican in that colony of the United States who continues to live violence and oppression from the imperial U.S. state. And so, like, I feel like there is a way in which politically understanding layers of privilege um, allow for one to be more conscious and I think exactly like what you're saying of like is it that when we are even though we may feel more deeply connected because of a particular identity that we share in common with a particular community um like our gender identities and sexual orientation for example are we continuously remembering to keep on our lips at the same time that we mourn the deaths of those folks who are part of a community that we identify with are we reminding ourselves and are we lifting up the voices of and are we continuing um to recognize the ways in which those were interlocking oppressions there was particular intersections of race and immigration status and class that came into that conversation and why those folks were at that particular vulnerable intersection um and so when i think about like okay that's really helpful intellectually but what the hell do i do with my body what the hell do i do with my time mm-hmm. it thinks i think so much about my own privileges um and 
her, um, and like trying to track in my mind kind of a power map of where do I have access to privilege and when that stuff mm-hmm. feels like, am I authentic and feeling this way or sharing my lament, thinking about who I'm communicating with and where I have access to privilege and power and how I funnel some of that rage or some of that hurt into somewhere where I actually have the ability to shift things, even if it's like talking with members, with white members of my family around something like I just gotten through the week before having a conversation with a white family member who says, why do people have to flaunt it? I don't care what you do in your bedroom, but like, why do people have to hold hands in public and whatever? And that was like, that, what I can do is have a really hard conversation with this person in my family who is white, who doesn't understand why we still have to make a statement around why it's okay for us to love people. Um, and that, like, it's a little tiny thing, right? But it's a help way of being like, this is the access where I have spheres of influence and how I can shift some of those. And for some of us, that's little things. And for some of those, it's movement of resources financially or time or energy. But that's what I can figure out to do with my body that feels like I have to do something or it will just either collapse on the floor or explode. <laughs> can I... Do do a little side a side addressing of a of a thing that we've that we haven't addressed in the question yet. Yeah. With, with the total caveat of what do I know? Okay, so <laughs> this is a total what do I know moment. <laughs> I think that there is not necessarily an issue with making choices in life that are normal or normative. I think there may be an issue with defaulting to them without considering alternatives. And I think there may be an issue with not realizing that those that those are called normal and normative because of ingrained privilege. But I don't think there's necessarily a problem with making those choices with the awareness that they are choices you're making and not the defaults and with the awareness that other people maybe don't have access to make those same choices. What do I know? Yeah. I mean, as someone who claims authenticity and and intention as the two most important things that I work on in my entire life. Um, I feel like authenticity is absolutely critical um, to one's like flourishing in any sense of the word. And it feels like, yeah, that normative road is actually a really hard road to hoe. If you're aware of all the ways in which it, it silences certain parts of us or certain communities of us, and I actually yeah. don't know very many people who have a power analysis of privilege and oppression systemically, not individually, but like systemically, who there isn't part of their life that is absolutely the opposite of normal, who they don't feel like, sure. well, my femininity is in question because I play sports or like my, you know, is in question because I desire and have had past sexual relationships with other women or like, I just don't believe that that person exists. Maybe they do. <laughs> what do I know? But my experience over and over again is that, like, that shit just doesn't work for anybody. Maybe you have sex in our case, but there is, like, something that is just not okay for the mold for almost all of us. If you are paying attention and, like, connected to all the ways in which you are a really complex and multifaceted great person in the world, because we all are. Mm. They may exist. I'd like to meet them. I'm super curious about 
quickies. Yeah. On to quickies. <laughs> this is the. This Was is that the a new bit. theme song? Yeah, it goes quickies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so lusciously melodic, Dave. I don't know if I'm going to be able well, to get it out of you my have to head. You hear it when it's fully orchestrated. It begins mm. with a lone tremolo. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see uh, what you did there. Uh, we referenced that on the episode we did with Cole. I only know like two jokes and neither of them is funny. Um, I, I watched a motion picture in the, in the motion picture theater that is called Captain Fantastic. Uh, it is written and directed by Matt Ross and it is about um, uh, a man trying to raise his six kids living completely off the grid on a mountain in Washington state uh, training them in how to be good and considerate and conscientious human beings but separate from society pretty much entirely um and then the ways in which that is um beautiful and impossible and difficult and off-putting and what happens when you then have to if the opportunity to integrate into society more fully comes how do you do that and why and whether you should or not um I found it really super moving and great and has made me think about a lot of things about what it is, what it means to live intentionally and what it means to live as a member of a community and society. And, um, I, I, I highly recommend it. Mm. Captain fantastic. It also stars Vigo and you know, it's always good to see Vigo. <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> he's very, he's very pretty <laughs> and a very fine actor. <laughs> so very much recommended thank you dave um i'm going to share two brief songs that i learned in the past two days one is a song that i learned from a beautiful three-year-old girl um that has to do with consent and she sang it at a picnic that i was at last night and we all got to sing it with her and she led us and even the hand movements that i wish i could share but it goes my body belongs to me <laughs> and nobody else but me from my hairy head to my tippy toes my body belongs to me <laughs> yes and i love that <laughs> and then the other song is from um uh, this amazing group of friends that I'm living in co-working with this month in New Mexico. Um, and I learned that this is actually a, a, a song from pagan tradition. And I uh, don't know much about that tradition, but I really love this song. I know that it's a kind of reframe or alternative to the, the, the Bible verse that you know, definitely know better than I do, Alba, of, um, of humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he uh -huh. shall lift you up. But um, this is a, is a kind of interdependent reframe of that. Um, and it goes, um, you gotta humble yourself in the sight of your sadness. You gotta bend down low. You gotta humble yourself inside of your sadness. You gotta know what it knows. And we will lift each other up higher and higher and we will lift each 
each other up. Then insert anything for sadness. You gotta humble yourself in the sight of your fear. You gotta bend down low. You gotta humble yourself in the sight of your fear. You gotta know what it knows and we will lift each other up. Higher and higher and we each other up. So I've done anger, I'll do students, children. I'll do one more verse. You gotta humble yourself inside of your joy. You gotta bend down low. You gotta humble yourself inside of your joy. You gotta know what it knows. Everybody and we will lift each other up. Higher and higher and we will lift each other up. Wow. I love that. Yeah, that's really, really great. That's really great. Yes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to use my shout-outs for shameless plugs for the organizations I love and care about. Yes, okay. do it. Good. So totally go to soulforce.org and download our newest um, Bible resource combating spiritual violence based in Solomon Gomorrah. More in that series will be coming out later. The, I'm a co-founder of an organization called Sexual Liberation Collective, and we are seeking new members of this collective that's been around for a couple of years now, and it's for folks who dedicate um, their lives, either paid work or unpaid passion work, uh, to bodily sovereignty and sexual education um, for our sexual freedom and incentives queer folks, folks of color, differently abled folks, um, and so intersectional, beautiful groups. So we, you can go to um, sexualliberationcollective.com to find out more about our mission and find an application for membership if you feel like that's what you do in the world and you want some comrades in that work to help hold you and support that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one is just to circle back on the book that I mentioned earlier, um, Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines, which is edited by Alexis Pauline Gums, uh, China Martins, and Mia Williams, who created this amazing anthology of just dozens of um, queer and black and brown women to speak about how we mother ourselves and each other in this movement, uh, not connected with children, although most of us have kids and that's part of it. But um, the, mothering is something we can all do and we all should be doing our liberation. So those are my plugs for for my quickies. Alba, I'm so grateful that this worked out. Thank you for being so Thank generous you. with your time and your wisdom. So fun. I'm delighted. Anytime, anytime, anytime. Yay. Yay. <laughs> And that's it for episode 30. Thank you again so much to Alba and to our amazing producer, Jamie Beckenstein, and to Elle and Andy, our wonderful social media and admin team. And as many of you know already, we absolutely love hearing from you at any time. Please feel free to send us your thoughts, your questions, your ideas, your objections. You can find all the ways to get in touch with us at our website, sexforsmartpeople.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and all of the places. And we say it so much, but I really think it can't be said enough. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being a part of this conversation with us. Love.
living into our fullest authentic desire is the sexiest. Intersectionality is the sexiest. Mm, definitely the sexiest. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs>